I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. The Chicago Bears finally have a win on the scoreboard for the first time since Twitter was actually called Twitter and all it took was to get Chase Claypool to work from home. That's what we're going to be talking about for a lot of this show today. Also, some of the, uh, the teams that aren't crushing it with a winning record sitting there at 500 or worse or any of those actual potential Super Bowl contenders and, of course, our injury breakdown with Vic Troja at the end of the show. Joining us to do all that will be Brad Spielberg. How's it going, Brad? Uh, you know it's going fantastic. It's Victory Friday, baby. <laughs> Congratulations on your victory. The first victory for quite a long period of time for the Chicago Bears, for you, for Justin Fields, for everybody. It's great. For everybody. Top to bottom. Uh, we'll get into it. I think it was also like a big Ryan Poles, Matt Eberflus victory in, in some ways. So it, it was just, yeah, top down, uh, a very convincing you know W on a short week against a you know decent opponent. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of good to take forward from that game and, and hopefully to get healthier and play even better. And a big win for them to alleviate some of the pressure. I mean, obviously, Fields has dealt with a lot of it this season, but there was talk that, that a loss, a bad loss last night. I mean, remember, they were six-point uh, underdogs heading into that game. A bad loss could have been curtains for everybody or curtains for Eberflus or, you know, the kind of loss that would get people fired. And instead... Everybody's feeling good. There's a win on the table, and you know we get we get to go in a different direction. Yeah, and so you mentioned Eberflus. Look, I personally wasn't really buying it. You know, the Bears have never fired a coach in season. I know this year obviously was off to as bad a start as any had probably been. So maybe you change that. But for me, I mentioned the, the win for Eberflus, right? I mean, you're missing a bunch of players. Basically, your entire starting secondary is not in this game. Jaquan Brisker came in with a hamstring injury, so not 100%. Um, the big thing for me was, and of course, this is game plan specific, but the Bears had not blitzed on 20% of plays in a game this year. They blitzed over 30% of the time you had the greg stroman sack you know the, the db uh nickel blitz you had you know other moments tj edwards came in on a blitz i don't think they they got a sack on that play but uh it led to either an errant throw or something like that they were clearly effective when bringing extra rushers again you don't blitz patrick mahomes you know week three against the chiefs or anything like that but just when you're generating you know a league low pressure rate and never sending extra guys eventually you got to change something they did uh and it really worked last night Everybody's feeling good, but that doesn't mean you can forget about the important things in life, like securing your family's financial future, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start 
to cover it in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So, Brad, that game was strange last night. Um, as impressive as it was for the Bears, and I think they did show dramatically different things on both sides of the ball than they had for most of the season, Washington were awful. Like, they started the game badly and continued along that furrow that they were digging. Like, play number one should have been a huge chunk play to Darnell Mooney, a, a corner route that they just missed. You know, we talked about this before going on the air. It looked like bad ball location by Fields and then a bad adjustment by Mooney. Incomplete. But that was a, almost a coverage bust. Like, it was a wide-open guy one-on-one. Like, play number two, same thing. And that was like the first three drives. Nobody was getting covered. Everybody was wide the hell open. Washington, I don't know what Washington secondary was doing. It was truly insane, right? Not to take away from what the Bears did. Obviously, you know, you guys are wide open. You hit them, and, and they get yards after the catch and all those things. But, I mean, Richard Sherman talked about it at halftime. Like, safeties and corners not on the same page of who's supposed to, you know, take the deep third on a certain, you know, in, in cover two or all these various components of guys just not knowing where they're supposed to be. I mean, there were Bears receivers with 10 yards of separation on four different plays on the first drive. Even on the second drive, you had Mooney on the crosser we just talked about. Kind of an errant throw from Fields there, but he was as wide open as I've seen a player all season uh, and that kind of happened the entire night they eventually bench Emmanuel Forbes during that game yeah. and I actually think Danny Johnson who comes in usually plays more in the slot yeah he made a difference he had, he had a couple pass breakups and, and it was better in coverage yeah it was it was bizarre I tweeted this out earlier this morning because I remember it last year too the commanders were 27th in EPA per dropback allowed from weeks one to five last season from week six to 18 they were fourth in EPA per dropback allowed they had a massive turnaround um and, and they didn't even have Chase Young last year so you know maybe they can do it again but just bizarre that the last two seasons they've gotten on, off to these terrible starts I mean Chase Young had 11 pressures last night and you still kind of felt like that the front four was not winning against Against the Bears offensive line that was shuffling players in game. Um, you know, shout out to Evan Jenkins, who was awesome, allowed zero pressures, had an eight, you know, 83 grade. Um, but yeah, it, just their defense getting off to these extremely slow starts with all the talent they have is, is bizarre. And the reason it felt like the pass rush wasn't really a big factor for Washington is because it didn't matter when the coverage is that bad. Like, there's only so much your defensive line can do when everybody's open immediately from the snap. And you look at the PFF coverage grades from, like, the secondary last night. I mean, Forbes, 45, uh, Danny Johnson, 36, Cody Barton, 47, Kendall Fuller, 35, uh, Percy Butler, 39. Like, almost everybody in the back end, like, the best grades were Benjamins and Juice with a 58, uh, Derek Forrest with a 56, like not good. <laughs> and, you know, Emmanuel Forbes got benched. What he got benched for was essentially the same play as Kendall Fuller made later in the game for that last DJ Moore touchdown, right? Which is going for that pass breakup, kind of gambling a bit, not getting there, and then not securing the tackle when you miss. You know, Forbes did that. It was one of the sort of, that's one of those cardinal DB sins. And, and Kendall Fuller did the same thing later on. Just, like an absolute disaster from that secondary from start to finish in that game. 
Yeah, we also, you know, you probably in today's NFL scoff at the idea that corners, you know, guys come in at 160, 170, and we're like, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's such a, you know, ticky-tack sport now. I mean, DJ Moore and A.J. Brown are the worst matchups possible for Emmanuel Forbes at this stage in his career. Maybe you can put more weight on, but, I mean, you could have argued maybe it was OPI on the, the play where DJ Moore basically just pushed Emmanuel Forbes out of the way, uh, caught the ball, and ran up the right sideline, but... I don't think it was a push-off. I think he just right. put his shoulder into him, and, and Forbes kind of went flying. It's a month into their careers. I know you didn't like Christian Gonzalez as much as I did, um, but I thought that was an insane pick. You know, one pick before Christian Gonzalez. Uh, you know, it's early, but but anyway. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, the Forbes thing was interesting because you could see some plays on his tape where being 160 showed up. Like, it didn't happen very often, and usually he offset it by being feisty and physical and, you know, fighting through it. But you could find those plays in routes where, you know, there's contact or a guy leans on him, and a guy leaning on you when he outweighs you by 40 pounds or whatever is a problem. Like, he's going to... He's going to bash you out of the way. and like, There's not much you can do about that. It's just physics. You lose when it comes to that, comp- that contact competition. Um, and that, that's, you could see that happening a bit to Forbes at the moment. The other thing, uh, I think, like it, it created this very bizarre sort of stat line for Justin Fields where like, he passed for 282 yards, uh, four touchdowns, and DJ Moore had almost all of it, 230 and three. Uh, DJ Moore had 230 of the 280 something yards. Cole Komet had 42, and then Robert Tunyon had 10. Three guys. He only completed passes to three players in the entire game, and it felt like everybody was wide open all game long. Fields was spreading the ball around. It, I mean, it really was just they didn't stop DJ Moore. At all. I mean, truly the entire game, he, he was running wild, whether it was intermediate, deep, uh, you know, short, his ability to take those screens and, and shake off blocks or shake off tackles, uh, rather, and, and make plays in space. That was on display last night. I mean, the dude runs very, very hard. He talked about him as one of those guys, you know, like a Debo, where he turns into a running back when he gets the ball in his hands. Like, you saw that last night. I would say, too, though, I think Darnell Mooney had the best zero-catch game I've watched in a while. Uh, was creating separation. I mean, he was, he was creating separation off the line of scrimmage on, like, like a half dozen snaps that I remember from the broadcast angle. Um, you know, excited to watch the All-22. But, like, he was getting open. We talked about, the, you know, the one miss earlier. But, yeah, a hilarious stat line. I think Sam Howell completed passes to 11 players, uh, and Fields was just three. And, yeah, I mean, Cole Komet. Just a you know quick shout out. Like I know, look, he looks a little clunky. He he can't separate against man coverage. Not the best athlete in the world, but you play a team that plays a good bit of zone. He can find soft spots, sit down, sure-handed, make make you know rumble and stumble a little bit. I don't know. I think we we've fallen in love with the the U, the move tight end. That's like a fluid, smooth athlete. The guy's a you know, throwback inline guy that doesn't make it look pretty. Um, has been the highest graded, I think, tight end in the red zone dating back to last season uh, and just continues to score touchdowns. So, you know, he's not perfect, but I think, you know, that, that extension in hindsight now, I think looks pretty good. He, he's worth a mid-tier tight end contract, in, in my opinion, at least. The other weird thing from the Chicago offense point of view is I don't remember the last time a team completely ran out of running backs. I, I, I don't – that was a bizarre aspect of this is, you know, Herbert gets himself injured on that freak – play where it looked like a turf injury but it was a grass field um tried to come back and play through it and when he cut on that ankle his ankle just went no not a chance (laughs) take a seat back on the bench we're done today uh and so they're giving carries to the fullback um who so carry blasting game he's bounced around the league a little bit 
They said, I think, it, during the broadcast, he'd only had like three career carries up until this point. I'm, he must have carried the ball a ton in preseason because I remember him carrying the ball and being impressed that he's actually not a bad running back. Forget like the blocking element of being a fullback. Like He can carry the ball and do some damage. He was getting handoffs, and he looks pretty handy. You're putting me on a platter here. You've, you've seen him carry the ball in the, the SEC East when he dominated as a running back at the Vanderbilt University. Uh, yeah, I was freaking out about the, the three lifetime carries, which Kirk Herbstreet and now Michael said about a half dozen times. Hmm. Uh, he was not born on draft night in 2020 <laughs> and in 2019, whatever it was. Uh, he was a SEC running back for, I think, three years as a starter. So, yeah, no, it, it's a good element to have. He did, I remember preseason Minnesota games, he had a bunch of highlights and, and long carries. Yeah. yeah, he's a good player. I mean, can catch the ball, can pass protect very well, and is good as a lead blocker as a fullback. But, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, Travis Homer going down. You mentioned Khalil Herbert. He gets the ball, goes to the right, makes a cut, and just, like, his leg gives out. Yeah. And they were like, hey, it's questionable to return. I was like, no, nah, his night's over. Like, he is he is not coming back in this game. Um, and they were able to bleed out the clock and, you know, kind of get five yards in a cloud of dust with Blazing Game, um, which which was huge. I'm just looking at his preseason stats now. It's actually – so he did get some work with the Vikings, but it's actually mostly as a receiver. He still only had a few carries, eight carries for the Vikings in preseason games. He had eight uh, receptions as well, though, one preseason, and those went for 68 yards with a couple of touchdowns in there as well. So, I mean, it's still – no matter what way you look at it, if we go post-Vanderbilt career, it's still an incredibly small sample size, but he does look good with the ball in his hands. Like he's, in terms of like an emergency running back, he's probably about as good as you're going to do. That's true. It's true. And I mean, I think it was also, it mentioned, they mentioned it post-game, but Justin Fields, I think at that point, they had a couple design carries, QB power early to the left that yeah. got seven yards, like on the first or second series. Um, but at that point in the game too, you know, he said, I knew I needed to carry the ball more um, and, and look for opportunities to keep the clock moving, get five, six yards and get down. Um, and, and I think he's also grown in that area, sliding, getting out of bounds when he was supposed to get out of bounds or staying in bounds, but not taking a huge hit when that is uh, appropriate. It was a, like a timely use of his legs, not a, it's all we have in this offense. And, and I think it looked pretty good most of the night. I don't remember a, a non-successful run for Justin Fields the entire, the entire game. And then the other crazy stat that came from this game was tweeted by our, by our guy, Nathan Yankee, uh, last night. The Washington Commanders dropped back to pass 55 straight times without a designed run tonight, from 8.49 in the second quarter until the end of the game. That's the most for a team in a game that PFF has ever seen. So dating back to 2006, uh, more than 15 years, that is the most consecutive designed, like, called passes. Obviously, he scrambled a few times. This also includes um, nullified plays, you know, plays that, they called uh, a pass and whatever happened, nullified penalty, et cetera. That is wild. They, you hear about teams abandoning the run. I mean, they literally abandoned the run. They said, we do not need to call a run play for the remainder of this game. I mean, what is that? Like, that's basically, you know, two-thirds of the game, if not more, uh, just based on the game clock. Yeah, it, it was crazy. And based um, on volume, I mean, that's a, that's a full game, right? Like 55 <laughs> dropbacks yeah. is insane. Yeah, no, no question about it, which is funny, too, because it's like, all right, we're going to do that, but then we're going to kick a field goal on, what, like, fourth and, yeah. you know, two from the 10-yard line or whatever that was. So, yeah, that? I mean, look, it, made, it was working. It made a whole lot of sense. They were able to, you know, Chicago's still sitting back in soft zone. They're conver converting long third downs. They're attacking over the middle of the field, um, you know, a lot with Jahan Dodson and Logan Thomas and Curtis Samuel. They, they were bizarre, too, with their distribution of wide receiver snaps. Like, on the, on the Curtis Samuel touchdown, 
Terry McLaurin's not on the field for first or second down. They do nothing. And then on third down, he comes in. The safety bites on his slant. And Curtis Samuel is literally walking to the corner of the end zone uncovered. He had Byron Pringle out there. He had Jamison Crowder getting targets. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. It was... It was interesting to say the least, but but yeah, that, that, that was a wild stat. I think their pass rate over expect, expectation was like thirty percent or higher. Uh, you know, obviously they were they were in obvious passing situations, but just a completely abandoned the run. But it worked. It did, and it honestly feels like their best offense at the moment is actually just going screw it, like hurry up desperation mode with Sam Howell, right? And as much as you're not going to call design runs, apparently, like Sam Howell is going to get you a few scrambling. And when Sam Howell takes off scrambling, it looks like Tim Tebow. It's bizarre. He just bounces off people. He's got this insane combination of more strength than you give him credit for and an absurd balance to keep bouncing, like pinballing around off players and somehow still trucking in, in vaguely the right direction. There was a play I tweeted during the game where he like hit the he hit his own offensive lineman with the hit stick and like decked him on one of these scrambles where he's just careening off players and annihilates his own tackle like that dude is strong with the ball in his hand yeah no he, he has a low center of gravity and if you try to tackle him high you know on a sack he's going to shake it off and, and find a way to fight through it there was one play where I think Demarcus Walker had him dead to rights in the backfield and he went low on him hit him in the thigh and Howell just like bulldozed through it but we also did see you know the, the continued issue with him I don't think it was a good performance for their offensive line don't get me wrong but the last night was a clinic in how sacks are a quarterback stat in so many ways um, he was holding on to the ball forever uh, I think there was a stat on the prime you know screen that his like 80% of his passes come after three seconds. It's the highest in the NFL. Um, a, a team that had, I think, two sacks in the season that had less than one sack per game dating back to week one of 2022 had five sacks last night. I mean, that is as clear evidence as you could possibly have uh, that you don't always blame the offensive line and don't always look at how good the defensive line is. I mean, the quarterback is just not getting rid of the football. No, absolutely. Um, so... The other thing, so Sam Howell ends up getting sanked five times in the game, uh, which brings his tally to the season up to 29, which puts him on pace for 98 over the course of the year. That actually went down based off that game last night. Like, this was below average for him. Um, but the most the quarterback has ever been sacked in a season was 76 by David Carr. David Carr, who owns two of the, the top three most sacked seasons of all time. Uh, but Howell is on pace to obliterate that number. You're being compared to expansion team Texans, uh, David Carr, in a sack category. You are doing something wrong, no question about it. I, I, mean, I mean, look, credit to the Bears. I think the interior for them played as well as played in a very long time. Andrew Billings has been, I think, one of the better signings in free agency from a value standpoint across the entire NFL. Top 15 grade for us among interior defenders. But for me, the big one was... I mean, Javon Dexter played like he had not played to this point this season. Uh, you know he was an athletic specimen coming out of Florida. A lot of draft people were huge fans of his. You watch his college tape, and he was a two-gapper and doing a lot of read and react. But just his get-off was, like, uncannily slow. And last night, he was in the backfield very quickly uh, a bunch of times, had six pressures, over a 20% pass rush win rate. I, I mean, a lot of young guys I mentioned, I think it's like a Ryan Poles win – their rookie class, including including Javon Dexter, were making differences you know, across this entire game. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch because Washington, I think, is a combination of not a great offensive line and a quarterback who might be the most sack-prone quarterback in the NFL since Randall Cunningham. You know, when Cunningham had that insane 
season where he was sacked like a million times. Sack rate was 25% or something insane. Like, honestly, one of the, like, Steve has this tweet busy going viral right now. Like, what's the craziest stat you've ever seen in your life? That might be it, where Randall Cunningham, I think, was sacked on 25% of his dropbacks or something insane in the 1980s. Like, how, I don't know what his sack rate is right now, but it's off the charts insane. Um, that dude is a sack magnet. Yeah, I, I know his. Uh, <laughs> I know his pr- pressure to sack rate was like thirty five percent plus coming into this game. So if you get pressure on him, yeah. you, know, you have better than a one in three chance of bringing him down. I mean, look, he also stood in the pocket. I think made a bunch of very nice throws uh, attacking the intermediate area of the field. I mentioned. I, I think he's very good over the middle. There was one play. Uh, I think it was a key third down, maybe a second and long, where he went through his entire progression and came back around to Byron Pringle and delivered an absolute strike over the middle in a spot where only Pringle could catch the ball, you know, away from coverage. Like, so so him holding on to the ball sometimes when he does have a clean pocket leads to good things, but he probably just needs to bail more often. He is a pretty solid runner. Uh, like you said, he's bouncing off contact and all those things. But, uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, he, he's like, he'll stand in there f- forever and just take shots. And I think I am a probably of the perspective of like, again, you got to clean it up. It's, it's an... Uh, unsustainable rate but you watch a lot of young quarterbacks today that bail from clean pockets um i mean like kenny pickett and zach wilson some of these guys they have a they have a perfect pocket and they bail i'd rather have the howl who just sits in there and just takes shots and delivers balls because he did have a lot of nice throws last night no he did i i mean as much as it was kind of a crazy game, a weird like he's still a pretty good quarterback it's just that one flaw is a huge one and glaringly obvious and i yeah. It's usually not like a terminal problem in terms of, yes, sacks are negative plays for the offense, but they're a lot less negative than like throwing interceptions, right? So if that's your biggest problem, it's probably not a a terminal issue for a quarterback, but his might be so far off the end in terms of outlier extreme that it could be. Like he's so bad at taking sacks that it's actually a catastrophic issue and offsets a lot of the other issues. So moving on past that game, we have breaking news off the back of it. The Bears have somehow successfully achieved a trade for Chase Claypool. And the Miami Dolphins, of all teams, have agreed to a swap of late-round picks, per Diana Rossini, to acquire Chase Claypool. I am kind of blown away by that. The Number one, the Bears got anything for him whatsoever, given that they had literally sent him to work from home rather than be in the building. Um, and number two, that the Dolphins of all teams would be the team to risk literally anything to bring a guy like that into the building. I don't get it. Yeah, that, that is pretty interesting. They've had a couple injuries to some depth pieces. Um, I think Barrios got dinged up at one point. Um, last year, rookie Eric Ezekama, I think, is dealing with something. Cedric Wilson, the free agent signing last year, is just kind of like a non-factor in this offense. It, it is it is interesting. I, I mean, in theory, you add a big body to an offense that doesn't really have, you know, like that contested catch guy, but he hasn't done any of those things. I mean, in Chicago, he didn't block. You'd probably, you think of a Mike McDaniel offense, oh, they want perimeter receivers that block. You have to actually try, and maybe he will now on a fun, you know, dynamic offense. But, um, and then he's like, on contested catch balls, he, he really doesn't win a lot of them. So it does add a brand new element to this team, but. It, that is an interesting landing spot. I thought a team like the Chargers losing Mike Williams and, um, you know, on their bye could have been in the mix or, or, or I don't know, Baltimore with some injuries, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, eh, all right, new Miami Dolphin, Chase Claypool. Bizarre. Um, kudos to Chicago for getting anything for it, though. Like that, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> That's a win. 
just getting rid of him is a win, let alone actually getting anything back in, in, in exchange. So, yeah, impressive work for them. Um, all right, before we get into our, uh, our which teams might actually make a Super Bowl run from obscurity, we've got to tell you about Price Picks. This podcast is brought to you by Price Picks. Now, if you were paying attention to yesterday's podcast and therefore the game, uh, our Price Picks pick went 2-0. Our guy, Zach, San- Zach Tantillo, is the guy uh, plugging in these prize picks for you. 2-0 and right now, taking his victory lap. He nailed it. So if you were back in his picks, you won. Um, the picks this week, let's see. So prize picks is a skill-based, real-money, daily fantasy sports game. Uh, how does it work? You pick two to six players, and if they go for more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Price Picks has a ton of excitement to the sports viewing experience. Watch your progress, update in real time, win up to 25 times your entry amount, and cash out your winnings with quick scoring, settling, and withdrawals. At Price Picks, you aren't competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections, I, your brains against what actually happens. Price Picks entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Price Picks offers frequent discounts, bonuses, and other exciting offers. So, our prize picks for this weekend. PFF Price Picks lineup for Week 5. Josh Allen, over 2.5 passing and rushing and receiving touchdowns. Uh, I'm going to assume that's the Buffalo Josh Allen rather than the Jags one, though it's unclear. Tyreek Hill, over 0.5 pass, rush, and receiving touchdowns. So, that feels like a given. Mark Andrews and Zay Flowers. Over 0.5 rushing and receiving touchdowns. Brandon Ayuk, over 55.5 receiving yards. Trevor Lawrence, over 35.5 pass attempts. And Patrick Mahomes, over, so it's an over week for ZT, uh, over 285.5 passing yards. So that is the PFF prize picks lineup for week five. Let's see if ZT can continue his strong start. And uh, if you guys are going to, you know, follow him or... uh, or tell him he's full of it. All right. 22 teams based off last night are .500. 500 or worse. Winning records, not here. Either 500 or losing record. I think a few of them are going to make the playoffs. And I think there's a couple of them that could still make a run and threaten you know, the very best teams in the NFL. The teams that have gone off to a hot start. Um, actually threaten those teams for a Super Bowl. So... Who's your, who's your team? Let's make a case for one of these sides to actually go on a run and still turn things good for the year. Yeah, I'll go with, uh, I guess, a fairly chalky pick here, but I think the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I don't love their matchup against the Bills this weekend, so might be a delayed uh, bounce back. But I think the big thing for me is when you add Cam Robinson, the left tackle, back into the fold here, he's now off his suspension. He flew to London last week with the team, uh, even though he couldn't play and will now be there. I think the big thing is you not only improve the left tackles, but, well, you not only add back a starting left tackle, but Walker Little, who is a very good player and was playing very well at left tackle, either he goes to right tackle or maybe he slots in at left guard. I think it might be left guard. Um, Or Anton Harrison, their first-round pick, plays guard, and he plays tackle. I think you're improving two positions on the offensive line, Um, you know, not just one. And if you watch that game against Atlanta last week, I mean, they wouldn't let Trevor Lawrence hold the ball more than two and a half seconds or throw the ball downfield. And they had two uh, attempts beyond 10 yards downfield, one of them being that early touchdown to Calvin Ridley. And obviously, game script, I mean, you knew Atlanta wasn't going to score, so you didn't have to throw the ball downfield. But... I think you bring that element back into the offense. And then, look, the defense needs to get better. There's no, you know, ifs, ands, or buts about it. But 
Eventually, you probably get Devon Hamilton back in the fold. You know, the defensive line with the growth of Trayvon Walker, if that comes. Um, Josh Allen, the other Josh Allen, it's, it's the Josh Allen Bowl, um, is playing very good football so far this year. 80-plus uh, grade for us in run defense and pass rush. Already has six sacks on the year, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think the defense will get better. You, you know, Devin Lloyd and all these young recent first and second round picks across the defense, um, I think they're going to figure it out, and, and I think they're going to be right back in the mix. I could see Jack. I could see Jacksonville definitely. Um, you know, we they were a team that through four weeks they weren't looking good, uh, but they had there were sort of various little red flags of how that wasn't necessarily reflecting how good they had been in those games. You know, the couple of uh, losses where Trevor Lawrence I think had been dramatically outplaying or outperforming the results, and they weren't getting rewarded. And then we saw a bit of a bounce back. Uh, against Atlanta and it'll be interesting to see if that can continue you know going through and, and sort of actually rewarding them that like Trevor Lawrence there were people sort of asking hey we said Trevor Lawrence is going to be one of these top quarterbacks in the Mahomes Josh Allen etc type of bracket and where's that been well he's he was actually grading that way for those first four weeks but his receivers kept dropping the ball or only getting one foot in bounds and you know not helping him out now I think we're actually starting to see that and that should continue. Like, those are good receivers. They shouldn't have been letting them down at that kind of rate to begin with. So I can definitely buy them. The team that I would throw my uh, my gamble behind would be the Cleveland Browns. Uh, crazy as that sounds, because they're the Cleveland Browns. But that defense is fantastic. I mean, that is a completely different unit this year than it was any recent season. Their defense is formidable. One of their losses came with DTR being thrown into the lineup. You know, as, as whatever you think about Deshaun Watson on the field, he's better than that. You know, he's not – he can at least play at a level that isn't going to lose them the game given the start they have uh, with that defense, the platform they have. They've got receivers. They've got a good offensive line still. Dewan Jones coming in as a rookie has been more than solid at right tackle. Okay, Nick Chubb being gone is a loss, but I think they can still get a more than functional ground game uh, given that offensive line. And the rest of that division, you know, we thought it was going to be this brutal murderer's row, but Cincinnati has been bad and Joe Burrow's injury isn't going away. Pittsburgh have been bad. <laughs> Tyler approves of the choice, according to the lower third on the graphic screen <laughs> at the moment. Um, and Baltimore have been really banged up. So even if the Ravens run away with the division, I think there's absolutely a chance that Cleveland gets one of those wildcard spots. And then that's the kind of defense in the playoffs that can change dynamics of games. Absolutely. I mean, that defensive front is playing at a different level right now. Greg Newsom's playing good ball. Um, you know, and Deshaun Watson finally had a great game against Tennessee. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, probably the worst secondary. You know, statistically, they've been the worst secondary essentially in the NFL since last year. But, but still, very, very good performance. Evaded pressure. We know Tennessee can win up front. Um, you know, and then, of course, misses the Baltimore game. That was kind of interesting. It was medically cleared to play, but didn't feel up for it. Anyway, uh, I like the pick. Uh, I think, you know, you, you get in that scenario, the defense keeps a low-scoring game. I think with just Deshaun Watson, Amari Cooper, Elijah Moore has been creating separation at, at a crazy high rate. I, I think they could definitely you know, make some noise uh, as well. Make some noise. I like it. Um, the last thing we want to cover in this show is Carolina's pursuit of a number one wide receiver. That was a report that came out during the week. The report was something like they are all in on Bryce Young, the player and the person. So they're 100% sold, despite four games that made everybody else go, ooh. 
<laughs> Did we goof on the Bryce Young thing? Apparently those four games were enough, and only three of them he played in, right, uh, were enough to make Carolina instead go, this is the guy, so let's find him a number one wide receiver. Uh, unfortunately, they traded away their number one wide receiver to get him in the first place, and that's DJ Moore. So what are their options right now? Yeah, yeah, probably tough watching him go for 230-3 uh, last night. But, I mean, I had to get the trade done, I guess, to get the quarterback. So, yeah, when you see, like, number one <laughs> – your definition of number one has to be very loose, I think, if you actually want to get something done at this deadline. Yeah, I mean, the, the big name, number one, that people are going to continue to talk about, especially if the Bengals keep losing games, is, of course, T. Higgins. Didn't get an extension done this offseason. Bengals off to a slow start. Uh, I just don't see it personally. I'm sure they've called. I'm sure they've tried. Um, but I think Cincinnati play, goes through the year, slaps a franchise tag on Higgins, and, and goes from there. For me, the one that makes the most sense uh, is Jerry Judy in Denver. If the the Broncos, look, they've apparently been open to moving one of Judy or Cortland Sutton dating back to last season. You have the emergence of Marvin Mims, which I think does, of course, matter. Obviously got a lower threshold here, but number one in the NFL in yards per route run. You know, he's averaging like 20 yards per reception, um, has been an explosive playmaker. So I think Jerry Judy is probably your best option and more most realistic option. I know Denver has been asking for a first-round pick dating back to last year. I think you could probably quabble with whether he is worth a first-round pick, but you look at him, you know, dating back to last year as well. Um, he's top 20 for us, top 15 for us in receiving grade. I know he's top 15 in yards per route run. Um, he's top, I think, 10 in yards after the catch per reception. Like he, he was doing a lot of good last year once that offense got figured out. The thing for me is because Carolina does not have a first-round pick this year or a second-round pick in 2025, do they want to move more capital um, and just still not have young draft picks to add into the equation, or does Brian Burns come into the picture? Mm -hmm. I mean, Denver is 30th in pass rush win rate. Uh, they they have I mean, they just cut Randy Gregory on Tuesday, uh, who wasn't playing particularly well, but you know was one of their top snap uh, you know players at edge defender. Maybe you send Brian Burns to Denver for you know Jerry Judy and a first and actually get draft capital and an edge rusher. Sorry, long-winded answer. Other options I think are uh, potentially Darnell Mooney in Chicago. Uh, I think um, maybe Cortland Sutton if you want to go a different option in Denver. Um, and then you know like you're not going to get a true number one in my opinion. No, I, I mean there aren't. I don't know that there are any true number ones out there potentially available at all. Um, the the T Higgins thing is interesting. I mean, we've been pushing this for ages. Like, are they going to go the Jesse Bates route with T Higgins, which is play out the deal, franchise tag him once, and then the next year he's gone, right? At which point there comes a like. You, so you have those essential two years left of, or a year and a half of, of T. Higgins' control at a reasonable cost level. On the other hand, somewhere along that chronological timeline becomes a point where the trade you could get back is better for you, right? Like, yeah, you miss out on however many games of T. Higgins at that cost control point. On the other hand, you're getting more back in trade capital. And particularly given the start of the season, I would kind of think that that moment in time is actually closer than they would have assumed it would be. And maybe this is a deal that's getting progressively more attractive the longer it goes on. So like, if, that's your, if you're not planning on ever signing him long term, I feel like it's a trade that eventually you have to consider. Uh, the Jerry Judy thing is fascinating because I loved Jerry Judy coming out. And he hasn't quite been that player in the NFL in particular. But, but where his strengths are... 
he's still one of the best route runners in the league. He still separates better than almost anybody else, and he just seems to be very, very bad at contested catch stuff or even just playing the ball deep down the field doesn't seem to be a particularly good strength generally. But that strength is actually perfect for a young quarterback, Bryce Young, who doesn't really know where to go with the ball right now. Like if you can give him one guy that's always open underneath an intermediate, right? That's a pretty good starting point. And then all of a sudden, DJ Chark's one trick is actually quite useful. Yep. Right now it's a complimentary piece. And Adam Thielen, you know, the stuff he does is actually more of a useful complimentary piece. I think that's actually a nice fit in Carolina, the, the Jerry Judy thing. And given how desperate Denver needs a pass rusher, the Brian Burns thing makes a lot of sense as well. I feel like there's a deal to be done there. However, that ends up looking like, I think it actually makes sense for both sides. I really do think it's kind of one of those rare, like, Carolina, again, I guess they could franchise tag Brian Burns, but you turn down two first-round picks and a second-round pick from the Rams last year and don't get an extension done. You're 0-4. You know, clearly you're not comfortable paying this guy at the level that he probably deserves. Um, and, and you can add draft capital. And like you said, I think he is a great fit. They didn't cross over at Alabama. They missed each other by a year. But, yeah, I mean, him just running crossers and, and Bryce Young just getting the ball out quickly to a guy with early separation. Like you said, it opens things up for other players in the offense as well. I think it makes all the sense in the world. One other name, one other name I forgot to mention that I do think is interesting um, is Marquise Brown with the Arizona Cardinals. You know, the old regime in Arizona trades for him, sends their first round pick, gets him and a third. He's been good there. He really has. Um, you know, when he when he is playing, he was hurt a little bit last year, but he was top ten in targets and receptions last year in the weeks he did play. But going into his fifth-year option, do we know if this regime loves him? I don't know. Michael Wilson, you know, the rookie is also emerging there for them, just like Marvin Mims. You know, it, it does kind of limit your, your your offense, and Kyler Murray and him are very good friends going back to Oklahoma. So, like, there, there's other, you know, components to it. But, you know, I think you're getting pretty good draft capital there um, if you're Arizona. And if you're Carolina, you know, guy that can play inside-outside, a, a guy that, again, that can create separation, can win downfield – I think it makes a lot of sense from a football standpoint. No, it does. Absolutely. Um, all right. We're going to head over to the uh, the Boo Boo Breakdown and Vic Troja in just a minute. But i got to send you to a couple of places first if you are still listening. Number one, um, go join the Discord. You can find the link in the description of this show. Come hang out. Come uh, drop your questions in there. Pick the games. All kinds of uh, interactive stuff going on. Number two, Steve Palazzolo has an absolute banger of a tweet going right now. He asks what... The craziest stat line you've ever seen was all kinds of people are uh, chiming in. So give us your thoughts on that. Go to his Twitter. It's also interesting because I think that provides some fascinating uh, discussion topics, right? And one of them I covered yesterday on a YouTube video. Would Dan Marino actually throw for 6,000 yards in today's NFL? You hear that all the time. You can find that on my Twitter somewhere. But I think there's a few from this uh the, the, Steve's replies that might actually make some pretty interesting videos. The Randall Cunningham, that thing we talked about earlier, him getting sacked 24% of his dropbacks in, in, in 1986, I think would make kind of a crazy stat line uh, discussion. The, um, the stat line of Jerome Bettis having like five carries for one yard and four touchdowns or whatever it was, that's pretty crazy as well. Just I would encourage you to go just read the replies of this tweet because – they are fascinating. Some of the most insane statistics that have ever happened in football or any other sport are worth uh, checking out. So 
that'll uh, that'll do it for our little segment. Thank you for uh, coming on today, Brad. And now we're gonna go talk to Vic. Back here as ever on a Friday with our guy Vic Troja, the uh, injury expert to do what Tyler has affectionately named the Boo Boo Breakdown. How's it going, Vic? I'm doing well. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. All right, let's uh, let's dive straight into it. And uh, I think probably the biggest injury to talk about coming out of last week was Kenny Pickett, mm -hmm. who injured his knee um, trying to escape pressure in, in that game, goes down. Looks like he's going to be playing, though, and they're terming this another one of these bone bruises. So what are we dealing with with Kenny Pickett? Yeah, when you saw that happen, it actually looked pretty bad. I was yeah. worried that he tore his MCL, uh, which is the ligament on the inside of the knee. And it appears that it's intact, probably just some swelling around that area. When you have a bone bruise <clears throat> after like a hit like that, it normally occurs on the opposite side of the knee because that's where the compression happens. And it's kind of reminded me a little bit of like Travis Kelsey mm. earlier in the year. Uh, it's just going to be swollen. It's going to have some impact on his, his ability to jump and cut on it. But right now, uh, it's looking like he's going to play. Normally when you see a bone bruise, it's about two to three weeks that you miss. But it must just not have been that severe. He'll probably have a brace on it or a compression sleeve. Obviously going to get treatment before. I don't see any problem with him coming back and pre being just you know full go this week. So They've been talking about it as a just a pain tolerance and comfort type of thing, not mm -hmm. something that's actually, you know, a concern during the game. So it's, it's really just a case of <laughs> this tough it up. Get yeah. out there, kid. Yeah, what can we give you before the game? And then yeah. make sure if he's cutting on it, you know, he's careful. Obviously, his lateral agility is going to be more impacted from that. So look out. Maybe he won't scramble as much. Right. But, uh, I mean, that's not his forte anyway. So. And then speaking of pain issues, T. Higgins is dealing with a broken rib. Yeah. And I've never – damage my ribs in any way shape or form but every time you talk to somebody that has they talk about it being like the most pain discomfort uncomfortable thing they've ever experienced and that's whilst not playing football games <laughs> so i can't even imagine going out there playing wide receiver particularly a you know contested catch physical uh possession type of receiver like t higgins with broken ribs yeah i mean when you look at a broken rib one of the things that you need to look at is where the fracture is so he only has one he doesn't have multiple broken ribs and the other one is it's not really in a spot that i'm too worried about like a pneumothorax which means it's puncturing a lung and when we say when they say broken rib are we talking like a just a crack in the bone where like this is not a displaced uh you know, two bones are not connected. This is, there's a crack running down the middle on the x-ray. Right. And, and it's not like a, a dislocation where the rib is like floating off the, the right. back. Um, it's not one where you'd see like it completely cracked off. That would definitely be a little bit more severe for him. It's just more like some people would look at it like a hairline fracture, right? right? Uh, a, a crack in the line. But um, what they'll do is they'll do a block injection, which is just a numbing uh, um, shot before the game. So he's going to feel good. Well, as good as it yeah. gets. And uh, you really hope that he just doesn't doesn't have any severe hits to that area. It's just, I mean, it's a violent sport. He's going to have some He's gonna have some pain. And it's just going to be a pain tolerance thing. Normally, when somebody breaks their ribs, they're out like zero to one week anyway. And it's just a tolerance. If that was me, I would be like on the couch like moaning because I'm in pain. So. Right, for like four months. <laughs> um, what? So I only saw during the game and then i saw the pictures of it what the hell happened to justin herbert's hand and what is his injury yeah so 
I was dying at his Monty Python quote. Did you see yeah. that? Yeah. How does Justin Herbert even know who the, whatever that guy's name is, the black uh, knight in Monty Python, how does he even know who that is? I gave him credit. I was yeah. like, how good for you. That must, man. I mean, that almost predates my time, let alone <laughs> Justin Herbert's time. That is decades ahead of Justin Herbert's time. He's probably some like movie savant that we don't know yeah. about. But he, yeah, when he, he said, tis but a scratch, just a flesh wound, I sat there and I was like, man, I would be like, in such pain that it looked bad. It looked pretty bad, but uh, it's on his non-throwing hand. He fractured his middle finger. Okay. Uh, I I don't see him really missing a game at all, especially because they have a bye week. Uh, but he's probably going to have it splinted or braced. And then the only really other thing I was thinking about is you're probably going to see him in shotgun a little bit more because getting that under center is going to be a little bit harder to get that snap versus shotgun. Uh, I, I mean, I look at that, and I think that's kind of just like going to be pretty uncomfortable. Even though it's your non-throwing hand, like you're patting the ball, you're I mean, handing you it off here. You know, you can't take a, an under center snap properly if this is broken. Right. Yeah. So it's definitely going to be bothersome, but it's something that he's definitely he's going to have to play through. Uh, yeah. Herbert with a, a broken finger on this non-throwing hand is better than any other option they have. So like the ridiculous scaffolding setup that they had in his hand was just like presumably this thing got splinted up, and then it was like – let's try and keep that together and just it got out of control like some splints or you know those kind of sticks and tape and it suddenly you've got this like freddy krueger looking hand it was massive working. yeah it was bizarre it was kind of one of those where like let's get this on as quick yeah and as stable as possible and we don't care what it looks exactly, like. exactly yeah and then it's only from the outside you're like hang on that looks pretty <laughs> horrific whatever it is right um yeah that's so it's we're talking like this is broken yes like this bone here yeah it got caught in a helmet um oh. so that's kind of that that definitely probably put a little bit more severe fracture it wasn't like he hit the tip right. of his finger on a helmet like there was definitely some damage there but they're going to buddy splint it, meaning they're going to tape it to another finger, or they're going to splint that single finger by itself and let them roll. God. Um, okay, we've got some returning uh, players from injury. Mm -hmm. The most interesting one, I think, to me is Cooper Cup uh, yeah. for a couple of different reasons. Number one, we're going to see what impact that has on Puka Nakua, who's obviously been so productive and so good for the first few weeks. But number two, because... It's the dreaded hamstring injury that we've been talking about and a severe one in his case because it's kept him out for a long period of time. Right. So what do we expect? Is he now in this zone of, oh, it's 90% back, we're going to you know, ease him into it, or is he actually good to go? I bet you he's eased into it, uh, given the fact that they even came out and said that they hope that he gets above 80% of his health to return and get on the playing field. doesn't mean that they're going to put him in at 100% go. Uh, the interesting stat that for me with hamstrings are 71% of hamstring recurrences happen in the same year. But of those injuries, 23% of the time, it's that first week back. Right. So this is going to be a big week to see how he feels. There's no testing it. I mean, you can sprint all you want and practice and cut, but you can't replicate what you're going to be doing in a game and what you're going to put that hamstring through. I'm really interested to see what his snap count is and how he looks on the field. He has had a long recovery period. Like, I don't think that he has, he's forcing himself back by any means, but it's not like it's just going to take the risk away because he, he went through his recovery. So when he comes back out on the field, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be a snap count, and then maybe the following week if he goes through this one okay, he'll be back to full go. Is, so when they 
from my perspective, this concept of like going 80% or easing them back in at 80% feels crazy because, I mean, in my experience, it's just not how hamstrings work. They're either fixed or they're not. And if they're not fixed, 80% of a snap load is not helping me. But when you listen to um, people talk about what you can learn from, it's it's all about sort of load over Mm -hmm. a period of time, not necessarily in that one sprint, even if that's the most acute time it's going to go. So when they're kind of managing the workload of these guys, how does that workload actually affect whether or not your hamstring is going to go? Yeah, it's actually a really good point, Sam. I'm I'm kind of with you. I think that if you put a player, especially as competitive as Cooper Cup is on on the field and you're trying to like load manage, well, it doesn't matter because he's going to go 100% right. on a given play. So he's just going 100% on 80% of the work that he would go 100% in otherwise. Right. But that clearly well, at least in theory, that makes a difference to the overall load that's being put through that muscle, whichever it is. Right, but at the, at the same point, if it's going to go, it's going to go. If it's right. going to, like, maybe giving him 20% less reps, it de- it decreases the likelihood, but it doesn't, it, it's not like he's, you know, going to slow down on a slant or a fade just because he's going, you know, 80% of the snap. So, I think that load management with these kind of situations is more just like, hey, let's get him out there and not have to push him through an entire game, but he's still going to be at risk because it's not like he's he's going to take off when he's he's running a route. He's going to go all out. Right. Um, and then the other guy coming back uh, is Jonathan Taylor, who's finally working his way onto the field after everything he's been through with both contract and injury. Yeah, this is one of those situations where you really wonder the underlying – um, issues that were there was it really contract negotiations was this really injury like they were talking about I looked at last year he, he had three ankle injuries had a surgery which was more like a cleanup it wasn't like a um, like Cooper Cup we were just talking about in the offseason had a tightrope surgery for his ankle where they kind of fixed it the the um, structure and stability of his ankle where where Taylor was just a cleanup so it wasn't any type of um, surgery to like reheal his ankle stability. It kind of gets me worried because he also has a high risk of re-injury. Three ankle injuries last year, coming into rehab for a long time this year. He's going to come out and we'll definitely see how his agility is, especially lateral movement, if there's going to be um, a high risk for that to happen again. I don't know if he's going to come out just full go, like get the whole backload, especially with Moss, how, how right. he's been playing. But uh, I'm interested to see. I think we're going to get a good idea if he comes back out and if he really was dealing with some injury or if this was just, hey, like some contract disputes. So um, so uh, a few people have been asking, um, what are the kind of injuries where you, you talk about it a lot, the percentage chance or the uh, probability of um, you know recurrence of that injury? What are the injuries we should be concerned about in terms of recurring down the line and what injuries are just, this is a one-off injury, once he's healed, he's good, and there's no more or less likely chance of him re-injuring that than anything else? Yeah, yeah. my brother and I were talking about this yesterday, and it's kind of interesting because you look at a a group of players and you might say like, wow, these guys have an injury, but they're going to bounce back, even though it might sound more severe or there might be um, differences in the way that their injury occurred. But when you look at like an injury, for instance, hamstrings, ankle, shoulder dislocations, and then I would say pretty much soft tissue injuries in the lower extremity, they have a higher recurrence rate of just getting re-injured. Probably one, just being soft tissues, 
used all the time, um, you might just tweak it and going in the wrong direction, the wrong way. And then uh, things like a shoulder dislocation is just like, it reminds me of Dalvin Cook and his instability in his shoulder. It is what it is until they do surgery to fix it. Well, like uh, more, it reminds me of um, Mel Gibson from Lethal Weapon. You know, you do it <laughs> once and now he spends the rest of his life walking through dislocating his shoulder and right. having to get really angry and popping it back in, <laughs> you know? Yeah, doing like the arm fling. And yeah. Just, yeah, getting it back in the socket. Well, then... Then you look at that, and then even though it sounds a little bit more severe, but like bone fractures, hand injuries, and then arthroscopic surgery, which is just surgery using a little camera in a tunnel to maybe clean up a joint or look at a joint to see what damage is done. Uh, those have a very low injury recurrence rate. And actually, the stats show that you have a higher risk of re-injury if you're above the age of 24 than you do if you've had a broken bone. Yeah, so to me, are we, are we literally basically talking about the only injuries that don't have a higher rate of uh, re-injury or, or re-aggravation is effectively bone breaks? Because bone breaks, like you always heard, you know, once the bone heals, it actually grows back stronger. Right? I don't know if that's yeah. bullshit or not, but at the very minimum, it doesn't get weaker. Whereas right. every other injury, like soft tissue the muscle has been damaged. Uh, ankle, shoulder, like the ligaments or whatever, like the soft structures have been weakened and or stretched and that doesn't go back. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the fact that when you have like a fracture, like you said, like the, the healing gets stronger, there's more ossification in that break, but then it normally is kind of like a fluke injury. Right. It, it's normally like a, just a bad hit at a bad angle or something like that, uh, where there's n you're not dealing with instability and all of the other factors. Does that also remain the case if, you know, if it's a terribly bad break and you end up banging bits of metal into it to, you know, stabilize it during the heel? Is that now basically, I mean, you've got to deal with other associated elements usually, but like when you have a rod put in your leg to mm -hmm. help it heal, that thing is now bulletproof because it's a rod of titanium in it, like it's not breaking again. Right, normally there's not issues unless there's problems with the screws getting disrupted, but um, sometimes they even go back for a second procedure just to take that stuff out. Right. There's not really an issue at all when it comes to that. When it comes to um, you know ligament type injuries, mm -hmm. is it actually possible to, is it a rehab question? Like can you actually get the ligaments and the various soft tissues, the things that stretched or tore, can those actually go back to pre-injury 100% or is that definitely less strong than it used to be or less, you know, tight, more unstable than it used to be, unstable, uh, but you can get it back to like 95% and that's what you're dealing with from this point on. I think the number one factor that would determine that is the amount of times that that's been injured. So I look like we just brought up Jonathan Taylor or like Saquon Barkley ankle injuries after ankle injuries right right that that ligamentous structure on his ankle is just not as strong and it's probably not going to get back to where it was yeah now but but, now. If, but if but is that a is that a question of like rehab versus football so you know if he gets like the first ankle injury ever let's say yep. a new saquon barkley comes along the very first ankle injury he gets right now you're on this debatable timeline like when can he get back on the field versus when is this thing a hundred percent right mm -hmm those two things work in conflict. If he went, uh, if he was like, screw football, I'm getting this back to 100% before I get back on the field, is that possible? Or is he just, 
once that first injury happens, he's now 5% closer to the next one and then 10% closer to the next one, then 50, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and then you end up like Saquon. Well, research does show that once you have one, you're more likely to have another. So that kind of tells you it won't be back to 100% unless it's some, I, I would say that the, the chance that it would be like a different case is if it's something like where Brock Purdy had like a UCL, which is in his arm, right? Mm -hmm. And um, had like the elbow injury, where something like that, where it doesn't really occur that often. Yeah. And it's not really that, that um, much required to like use his elbow compared to an ankle. There's, he probably could get back to 100%. But the ankle, yeah, that's a good one. That's probably not going to be back. So even when you're listening to sort of physios or whoever is giving you that kind of, um, here's the rehab structure, what those guys are talking about is actually, you're probably, ne like the things that were damaged are never going back to 100%, but we can strengthen things around it to offset that and get the whole structure back to 100% and mm -hmm. get, you know, it'll be a wash. Yeah, that's it, that's what they're targeting rather than like we can actually get this back to the way it was before injury. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting too. like in the clinic, like when I feel like people with chronic ankle instability, there's a difference. You feel it. They might not have had an ankle sprain for five years, you right. know, since they were playing sand volleyball or something. But it just so happens that their ankles been through that much and you can feel a difference. You sure can. That's where like when we talk about the rehab process, a lot of that is stability around the structures that are holding that ankle outside of the ligament, yeah. you know, and all the muscles there. So it's, it's interesting too, because you see such, I mean, fascinating athletes, like freak athletes, like Saquon and Jonathan Taylor and something, something like this can just be hindering their career because they just can't get over it and it takes so much load when they're cutting laterally and they're so forceful that that they just got to get that ankle as strong as possible and hope that it doesn't happen again yeah and it's fundamentally changed like what they in their brains thought they were capable of you know i used yeah. to be able to do this and now the ankle won't let it happen that's that's got to be a difficult thing to adjust to mid-career or mid like athletic you know performance yeah. um anything else you want to hit before we uh before we bounce no i just um i also wanted to say like there's there's this time of year now where we're going to start to see decisions made on injuries that might be more towards the value and outlook of a team versus like what the player should be doing uh we talked about this preseason with our injury podcast when we talked about Von Miller and his ACL right. and we came to the conclusion like why would they bring him back early in the season they need him late in the season playoff run he he could have been back earlier but there's just no reason yeah the timeline could have had him on the field for like week one yeah but it was never they were never interested in that happening because exactly. like, why what's the point what's the point and and now you have somebody who's completely recovered going to come back in and you're going to have them at a pivotal time. So this is an interesting time of year now where you're starting to see teams, you know, determine their outlook for the season. You know, is it a playoff run? Is it, a, is it something where we're going to just shut a guy down because we just don't need to risk it? Uh, or are we going to delay somebody a little bit longer from coming back because we're going to hit the playoffs and want them there? So I feel like with, with a lot of these players, it's just going to be interesting too because now you have that extra dynamic of what is the team's best interest in that player, not just like, okay, they're healed, let's get them back on the field. Yeah, and those things, I would say, most of the time work in direct opposition. I mean, yeah. we were, I was talking with Steve yesterday. Like, Baker Mayfield's career nosedive from the very moment he decided not to shut himself down after that shoulder injury yeah. and instead play through to try and help the team 
and then they went, thanks for that, but actually, bye, we're going in a different yeah. direction. And yeah. since then, he's been on well, like three teams in two in eighteen months. Yeah. So yeah, I would. It's you got to be careful what you're uh, agreeing to do for the benefit of the team and not yourself if you're an NFL player. Yeah, um, absolutely. All right, that's our uh, that's our boo boo breakdown, the injury breakdown with Vic, and uh, that's the show for the week. So thank you all for listening, and myself and Steve will be back on Monday. Thanks.